you to turn to Revelation chapter 10. Uh, let me remind you where we're at. This is a good starting point after a holiday break. And by the way, I do hope you know the word holiday is a religious word. Every now and again, I run across people who think holiday, you know, if I wish you happy holidays, that's not as spiritual as Merry Christmas. Of course, Christmas means Mass of Christ. What is holiday? It's short for holy days. So I know a lot of the secular people, a lot of secular people may not know that Christmas, Mass of Christ, is a religious term, which is a little more obvious, but holiday is a religious term. It's, it's short for holy days. So I hope that you had a great section, sessions of holy days. Um, so, but we're at a good starting place after we've been away for several weeks. We are back at one of those interludes that we've already seen before in the book of Revelation. Uh, typically, when we run into these interludes, uh, there's sort of a pause in the action. Um, they may be there for several reasons. They may be there to give us a break for, from some action that is a little difficult to sustain study of. We also have noticed over the years that most of these interludes somehow presents uh, a little more information about the state of the church, the state of the people of Jesus Christ in the world, uh, the role of the people of Jesus Christ in the world uh, in regards particularly to how we uh, will face persecution and how we can be comforted in the midst of persecution and how we are protected in the midst of persecution. We're not saved from persecution, we're saved in the midst of persecution. That's been the, um, the promise of Scripture. Uh, Jesus said that in many different ways. Uh, and it's also been the teaching of 2,000 years of Christian history now. That we're not saved from persecution. We're saved in the midst of persecution. But these interludes really do stand. They can, they can stand on their own. Uh, this interlude starts in chapter 10, verse 1, and it goes through chapter 11, verse 14. This is the interlude that occurs... We, we finished with the blowing of the sixth trumpet uh, at the end of chapter 9, if you can remember back that far. Uh, we, we read about the blowing of the sixth trumpet. This is the interlude that will occur before the blowing of the seventh trumpet. And the interlude sets you up also for the blowing of the seventh trumpet uh, here in, in Revelation um, the seventh trumpet, and you see it here in the text, the seventh trumpet is, is the last trumpet. The seventh trumpet is the trumpet that begins the end, however long that may last, but it begins the end. You've had the seven seals already. You had six of the seven trumpets already. You'll have the seven bowls that will be announced and come out of the, the seventh trumpet um, you're actually going to see something rather interesting in this interlude, this text, uh, that people don't seem to notice. There's going to be a, a, a revelation of the seven thunders here in this text. Uh, we are told nothing about the seven thunders, and we'll talk about it when we see it in the text. We're told nothing about the seven thunders, um, but that doesn't keep us from talking about them because um, we've read the whole book, the Bible, and I will, I will call your attention to like Psalm 29, 
we look at the seven thunders because I think that maybe explains to us the seven thunders, or at least partially explains to us the seven thunders. So, we have finished the sixth trumpet, and there's this pause now, this interlude now, before the blowing of the seventh trumpet. So, chapter 10. And chapter 10, I think, is a, ver- a fairly simple chapter to, um, to interpret, to understand. I think it's fairly straightforward. So, 10-1 and following. Then I, John, saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. Uh, notice that all of a sudden, John is not in heaven anymore. John is back on earth. Uh, that's typical of apocalyptic literature. Uh, the seer, or the one seeing the vision, or the one that's uh, revealing God's will to us, uh, they tend to go back and forth between heaven and earth. They go back and forth from a normal state to a visionary state. Well, here all of a sudden, uh, John is back on earth, and that's why he says, I saw another We've seen many angels, a lot of angels in um, the book of Revelation. I saw a new book that came out the other day, and I, I may order it and read it. It's a, it's a book on the book of Revelation from the point of view of all the angels uh, that occur in the book of Revelation. And that, if nothing else, reminds you of the number of angels that are referenced in the book of Revelation. So this is, as the text says, another. This is another mighty angel. Uh, that John is going to see, and this mighty angel's coming down from heaven, which places us on earth. And another thing about this mighty angel is you will see that this mighty angel is so glorious that um, some commentators, um, not the bulk of them probably, uh, but some famous commentators, have taken this mighty angel to be Jesus Christ. Um, you're going to see how glorious this mighty angel is in a moment. And you'll see how some people could think this may be a vision of Jesus Christ. There's only one big issue with that. Jesus Christ is never referred to as an angel in the book of Revelation. Angels tend to be angels, and Jesus tends to be Jesus uh, in the book of Revelation. So I think this is just another mighty angel. Um, you've got mighty angels running around the book of Revelation. But it is a glorious mighty angel. And it is an angel that does seem in a very particular way to share in the glory of God. Because look at this mighty angel. This mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud. This is where it starts sounding like God. You keep seeing God uh, God using clouds as a vehicle. Jesus using clouds as a vehicle throughout the Old and New Testament. Um, so this is an angel wrapped in a cloud. Think about Sinai, for instance. Here's an angel wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. Um, yeah, I'll say it. Some, some uh, Bibles and some commentaries and some uh, editors of Bible just kind of give you a headline to this section. And I don't think they do it much anymore, but they used to entitle this section the Rainbow Angel. Uh, for some obvious political reasons and social reasons, they don't want to go there now. Neither do I, and I'm not. It's, uh, that's why I don't refer to this as the rainbow angel. But he he is wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. What you should know is not any of the modern connotations of rainbows, but know that in the Bible, of course, rainbow connects you to God, connects you to the covenant, one of the covenants from God, the Noah covenant, and it also connects you with God's mercy that the covenant symbolized. So this mighty angel wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, his face like the sun, and his leg like, legs like pillars of fire. 
And again, you know, they were they were they were led through the wilderness by night by by pillars of fire. So you got the Exodus story all over the background of this text. So that's a pretty glorious angel. I do think it's just another mighty angel. Uh, he's going to get even a little more mighty as we read. Look at verse two. He had a little scroll, a little scroll, open in his hand. You'll learn in a few moments that uh, it's his left hand. But he has this little scroll open in his uh, hand. Um, So most of the ink that's been spilled over this chapter has been spilled trying to to discern what this little scroll is. And if this little scroll is the same or different from the scroll that the line of the tribe of Judah opens or opened in chapter 5. You may remember that scroll. It got opened in chapter 5. Maybe, maybe not. The thing about it here, it's interesting. Here, the word is one word in the Greek. Little scroll is a word in the Greek that means a little scroll. So it's translated that. But even here in this same chapter, this scroll is going to be referred to simply as a scroll. So it could be a little scroll. If you want it to be the same scroll as what was in the hands that Jesus uh, unsealed back in chapter 5, it could be the same scroll, and it could be simply a little scroll here in regards to this big angel. And I think that's probably what it is because look how big the angel is. It says that he had a little scroll open in his hand, left hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Again, this is an earthly vision, or the vision is one that he sees taking place on earth. So it's a mighty, and it's a mighty big angel. So it's a little, maybe it could just be little in regards to this massive angel. Um, what, What I think John wants you to see in your mind at this point, if you remember some of your ancient history, is the Colossus at Rhodes. If you go to the, if you go to Rhodes today, been there once, great place. If you go to Rhodes today, uh, all that's there now are the pedestals of what was one of the um, mighty um, wonders of the ancient world. This massive Colossus that was there at the harbor of Rhodes. Uh, even in John's day, it had already fallen. It probably was already. Um, in ruins by John's day, but it was a colossus that that stretched across the harbor, entrance to the harbor uh, there in Rhodes. So I think John's vision in some way would at least remind John and maybe us of that massive colossus there at Rhodes that used to stand there at Rhodes. It's a massive angel. Uh, He has his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land. And again, I think that's just symbolic as a vision telling John how massive this mighty angel is. Look at verse 3, and you're going to see what um, this mighty angel is going to do for us. Verse 3, and this mighty angel called out with a loud voice, like a loud roaring, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Now, typically at this point, you'd expect a series of learning what the seven thunders are about. Because you do that with the seven, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the next, the seven bowls. But it's just a reference here to the seven, thr- seven thunders. Um, but notice, it, it, we're referring to a voice that is like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Um, your homework can be go, go read Psalm 29. Which John would have been not John would have known well. Psalm 29. In Psalm 29, the beginning of that psalm, it talks about um, 
God's voice sounding like thunders. And then as the psalm continues, uh, the voice of God is referred to there in Psalm 29. The voice of God is referred to, guess how many numbers of times? Seven. Seven times there's a reference to the voice. So particularly in that psalm, and there's other places in the Hebrew Bible, uh, the voice of God is referenced as like the sound of thunder. So this is the voice of God that you're hearing through this angel. Uh, the voice of God like a roaring lion. Maybe you feel free to think about the lion of the tribe of Judah. That sounds like a roaring lion. Uh, that, that, that sounds like the seven thunders. Uh, the voice of God in Psalm 29. So you hear the voice of God through this mighty angel. And verse 4, And when the seven thunders had sounded... So you just skip over what they're all about. But seven thunders had sounded. He just wants you to know that this is the voice of God. When the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. Because evidently John heard uh, something, what what the seven thunders were saying. I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders had said, and do not write it down. Uh, We've watched this, looked at this text for 2,000 years now. And we try to wonder maybe what that means. Because you got seven seals, seven trumpets. You're going to have seven bowls. Here's seven thunders that you don't really hear what they say. You don't see what they symbolize as specifically as you do the others. Um, and John is told to seal it up. You had the scroll, you know, unsealed. But John's told to seal this up. So, um, you know, we, we, we can't ever just leave Scripture saying what Scripture says. We have to try to think about what it means for us. So most of us have written over the years saying that this might be a, a symbolic way, a visionary way of saying we know the plan of God, seven seals being opened, seven uh, trumpets being sounded, seven uh, bowls being poured out, but we don't know the complete plan of God. There's seven trumpets we don't get privy to, these seven trumpets. I mean, seven thunders we don't get privy to. So it may be kind of reminding us here in the text. And again, remember what I told you about interludes? These interludes tend to teach us something about us. We, we know a lot about God's will. God's will is not something mysterious we know nothing about uh, because we believe in God. I think you'd agree with me on that one. We believe in God. We also, in the Jewish Christian tradition, we believe in a God who has spoken, a God who has revealed himself, a God who has told us some things, and those things are written down in what we call the Bible. So we, you know, we know the will of God, but we don't know everything about the will of God. Um, don't know if you can do the math and say there's if you do if you do trumpets and or seals and trumpets and bowls and then add the thunders to it maybe maybe we can say we know three fourths of the will of God but there's a fourth that's still mysterious hidden to us uh, I kind of like that you know because I, when I see this I want to know what the thunders are all about but we're not told what the thunders are all about we we are left with just learning about the um, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. So I sort of like that. So I hope that you understand that we do know a lot about the will of God. It's not all mysterious to us. Um, That's why we call Jesus the Word, made flesh. We celebrate that at Christmas. We know a lot about the will of God, but we don't know it completely. So, you know, some people just act like we know nothing about the will of God, and we're just wandering around blindly. Well, we believe in a God that has revealed God's self to us, 
and has been written down in Scripture, and we know more, really probably more than we need to know about the will of God. You know, my, my problem on most days, what leads me to repentance, is not that I don't know the will of God, it's that I don't do what I know about the will of God. Uh, we don't know everything. We don't know everything about how the end is going to happen. We know more than we need, probably, about how history will go. We know more than we probably need to know about how we should live the Christian life. We know more than we need to know about what God requires of us. Um, but there's still some mystery there. And I think this might be a way for the text to remind us, as, as we're getting revelation in this text, that we don't get 100%. There's things, some things we don't know. Um, I mean, God has told us a lot, and we know a lot from God. Um, but there will there are some decisions we make that we don't have any direct revelation telling us how to make those decisions. You know, the Bible's not going to tell me what to have for dinner tonight. Now, the Bible will tell me to treat my body as a temple of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, the Bible tells me a lot, even about what I'll have for dinner tonight. But it's not going to say, pick this healthy meal over this healthy meal. Uh, so there's part of the will of God that does remain mysterious. But don't ever act like or speak like we don't know anything. And it's, you know, you got your interpretation, I've got my interpretation. Most of the will of God in Scripture is very clear. You know, we might debate over whether you stand or kneel for communion or whether you use a whole lot of water or a little bit of water for baptism. There's some pretty, John Wesley, by the way, called those opinions. Um, but the essentials we know, the essentials are clear to us in the Bible. You've got a big chunk of the will of God revealed. Uh, but you don't have it completely. So that may be a little bit what's going on here with the seven thunders. So don't be too curious about the seven thunders. You might not learn about the seven thunders for a really good reason. Anyway, Luke verse 5. Um, but you're going to know the basic thing you need to know from what this mighty angel is saying. And this is the, sort of the point of chapter 10. Luke verse 5. And the angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him. That's why the scroll's in his left hand, I guess. I guess he could have raised his right hand to swear with the scroll in it. But he raised his right hand to heaven and um, he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and earth and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it. So we know he's taken a vow. He's swearing to God. That's a lengthy way of swearing to God, uh, or referencing God. Uh, but what he's swearing to, what the vow has he taken, that he's taken, as you see at the end of chapter, at verse, the end of verse 6, is there would be no more delay. That's the message. There's mighty angel saying no more delay. Uh, remember what I said a few moments ago. You had the seven seals. You've had six of the trumpets. When we finish these interludes, you go to the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet is the last trumpet. Um, you know, when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, time shall be no more. You know, you know about that last trumpet that keeps being referenced uh, in the New Testament. Paul references it in 1 Corinthians uh, 15. He references it in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when the last trumpet sounds. So um, uh, you're being told here, no more delay before you're shown the last trumpet. So we know we're getting closer to the end here. Verse 7, but in the days of the trumpet call, and notice it says the days of the trumpet call. We don't know how long the end of the last days will last. Remember biblical theology, last days began with Jesus. 
The New Testament is very clear about that. If you ever use the phrase last days, use it biblically. Last days started um, really with resurrection of Christ and ascension. And we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. Um, but this, this, this seventh trumpet could be announcing the end, the last of the last days. Uh, the complete wrapping up of history. Uh, and notice it's not just a day, but it's in the days or in the season of the trumpet call. So that's the season of the end of the last days. It's going to be sounded by the seventh angel. The mystery of God would be fulfilled. Even the word mystery is not as mysterious as you think. Um, it may be if you don't know the Bible. But the point of the Greek word mystery, mysterion, is something that used to not be known, but is in the process of being revealed now. Paul uses that phrase, for instance, like in Ephesians. Paul uses that phrase, phrase the mysteries is the mystery of God. We know what that is. We can define that. The mystery of God is God's plan of salvation for the human race. So this is a mystery that we didn't know completely, that we now know in Christ. So the mystery of God's plan of redemption, God's plan of salvation for the human race is about to be fulfilled. That's what this seventh angel's announcing. That's what we mean by the mystery of God. You can almost just use the phrase mystery of God for gospel, uh, for the good news. Uh, you can actually see that in a second. Um, the, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced. If you had the Greek in front of you, you'd even know more from that word. Just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. The word announced there in the Greek is the same word we use for preached. Um, that he preached to his servants, the prophets. It even becomes clearer. The word actually is euangelion, from which you get the word evangelical, evangelism, the evangel. You know, evangelical is a great word. Please don't let 21st century American social media taint that word for you. Anytime secular media, if you're here Sunday, I said this Sunday, anytime secular media talks about the Christian faith or about a specific family of the Christian faith, I'm not a betting man. I'm Methodist, I can't bet. I'm not a betting man, but if I were a betting man, they are wrong. Whatever it is they're saying, they're wrong. They use words like conservative, charismatic, evangelical, fundamentalist, those are very distinctive, different things. But the media just uses all those terms interchangeably. So please, and in, in, in recent days, the terms evangelical has fallen on some hard times. Don't let 21st century America, which is only a little piece of a little part of human history, don't let the way that term has become to be seen in um, 21st century America taint that word for you. In Europe, for instance, if you were to go to Europe, the word evangelical simply means Protestant. I wish you would just recapture that. Uh, any, you know, I don't need to define for you who the secular media is, but anytime the secular media, and by the way, I'm particularly saying this as a Methodist from this past Friday, um, whenever the secular media says anything, they're wrong. When they say it about us, they may be wrong in general, but they're certainly wrong when they speak about us. They just don't have the, the background. We are a complex movement. We Christians have been around for 2,000 years. The Jewish faith, 1,000, 1,500 years before us, maybe, maybe longer. We've been around a long time. We're a complex movement. They don't know about us. They certainly don't know our text. 
So really beware whenever they even get close trying to say anything uh, about the Christian faith or the Jewish faith. Um, you know, I stay out of their business. I wish they'd stay out of my business. I'm not trying to broadcast the news. I wish they'd quit talking about Christianity and Judaism. Because anytime they say something, it's usually wrong. Almost always wrong. Anyway, but and you see, you know how that you see the word evangelicals used. Please don't let the contemporary media in just the last few years ruin that word for you. Euangelion means the proclamation of the good news. At its core, in Europe, evangelical just means Protestant. Uh, that's why you see evangelical everything. It's just because they don't really have the word Protestant. And think about it. I don't like being referred to as a Protestant anyway. Protestants just say you're a bunch of people who protest. And, and, and that's we did kind of start that way. Um, but, yeah, evangelical is a much more positive word. But the term evangelical in, in news media means a whole lot more. Um, means something very specific that's not even true about the use of the word. It just means someone who speaks or preaches the good news of Jesus Christ. I just like, for instance, there, I know of no kind of Christian that's not evangelical. Just like I know of no kind of Christian that's not charismatic. There's no Christian out there. Any charismatic just means you have a gift from the Holy Spirit. There are no Christians that don't have a gift from the Holy Spirit. But in, in this culture, sometimes the term charismatic means something very specific. Sometimes it's the term evangelical means something very specific. And they're usually wrong when the secular culture uses it. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox. Just um, I try not to even watch much secular media in general, but I really don't want to pay attention to them when they talk about Christianity or Judaism because they will just mess it up every time. And um, anyway, the word announced here is just euangelion from which evangelical comes. It just means you proclaim the good news. Um, verse 8, and here the good news is there's no more delay. The plan of God, the mystery of salvation for the human race that's offered to the human race is going to be fulfilled. So the end of the end is about to come, which we'll pick that up. You'll actually see it in chapter 11. Remember I told you there's cycles that occur throughout the book. You'll see a, a vision of the end in chapter 11 after you finish this interlude. So verse 8, Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. Notice it's little here. Earlier in verse 8, it was just scroll. Uh, so it could be the same one from verse 5, which may mean if it's the scroll that you saw, not verse 5, chapter 5. If it's the, if it's the scroll you saw in chapter 5, uh, we talked about it way back then. It's just God's plan for the human race, salvation plan for the human race. You know, if it is a little scroll, it could just be the last few chapters of the bigger scroll, the end, uh, or it could be the same scroll, because the term goes from scroll to little scroll. It's used interchangeably in this text. So, verse 9, So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, Take and eat it. In other words, digest it. Uh, that's where your prayer, your prayer is referencing that. When your prayer says, which I love this part, and the reason I like the prayer is we hear them read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. The, the scriptures. Don't just overhear the scriptures. You need to you need to hear them, read them, mark them, learn them, inwardly digest them. So here John is going to be told to digest them. Just like, here's some more homework, just like Ezekiel was told to do in chapters 2 and 3 of Ezekiel and Jeremiah was told to do in Jeremiah 15. So we have precedent 
of prophets eating the Word of God. And that just means what your prayer says. You inwardly digest. Um, you know the word meditate? And by the way, we've got a great new study starting tomorrow with Dr. Phillips on um, meditative prayer. Uh, if you want to get in it, don't worry about the deadline to register. I'll get you in it. It's going to be, it starts tomorrow morning at 930, six weeks where you learn the practice of meditative prayer. The word meditate in the Greek, which is our language of faith other than Hebrew, in the Greek meditate means it's a beautiful term, and it's, it, it, it actually is a reference to the Hebrew term. It means to the chew the cud. Chew the cud. Like a cow chewing the cud. That's what it means to meditate. That's why, you know, if you meditate on scriptures, like Psalm 1 tells you, you're chewing them. Again, you know, just a quick cursory reading is not enough. I mean, we need to be close enough to the scriptures John Wesley said, for those of you that happen to be Methodist, John Wesley said, in his day anyway, when you cut a Methodist, their blood would be bibline. In other words, when you cut a Methodist, we'd bleed Bible. Don't know that's the case today. It may be a little bit true with the New Testament. It may be a little bit true with the Gospels. But, uh, yeah, I'd go out. I'd hate to interview all my Methodists and tell me about the first three chapters of Ezekiel and see what I get. But John Wesley used to say, when you cut a Methodist, their blood would be bibline. Because you have, John Wesley loved the prayer that we use, because you have not only just read them, you have heard them, you've read them, you've marked them, you've learned them, and you have inwardly digested them. Now that you know that John, and by the way, this just may be a reaffirmation of John's commissioning here. He's because John is a prophet, and it's a kind of a recommissioning of John as a prophet. You're seeing that he's being told to digest the word. Um, but don't you notice what that means? Back to verse 9. Uh, so I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Um for the preachers in the room, I think you probably get that completely. You know, there's nothing sweeter to me than spending time in the Word of God. And there's some preaching of the Word of God that's very sweet. People love to hear it. Words of comfort, words of affirmation, words of great promise. But as a preacher, prophet, proclaimer of the Word, one who presents the evangel, um, who does the evangelical work of the church, one who proclaims this stuff. There's also words of judgment. Look, Revelation, you have hopefully picked up on that at this point. There's words of judgment. Um, you know, God is great, great love, but God is not just Santa Claus in the sky giving you everything you want. God has some standards. God loves everybody. That doesn't mean he celebrates and affirms everybody. Uh, I don't affirm me on most days. That's why this whole idea of repentance and confession is central to the Christian faith. You know, we love everybody. God loves everybody. That doesn't mean that we celebrate and affirm everything about everybody. I mean, if I... Well, we don't celebrate and affirm everything about everybody. So, you know, most of us preachers... I always... There was a great theologian years ago that always said the job of a preacher is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And I've always told clergy over the years... You know, by the time you retire, hopefully about half of your preaching has been priestly, 
About half of your preaching has has uh, comforted the afflicted, but hopefully about half your preaching has afflicted the comfortable. Now I know some preachers do one or the other. They're almost monotonous. They do one or the other. They comfort the afflicted or they afflict the comfortable. Because all of us like that part of the scripture, the text, the faith, that tastes like honey in our mouths. Um, but we, we can't just preach the part uh, that tastes like honey in our mouth. There's that part of, of, of the will of God that, that, that would be bittersweet in our stomach. You know, uh, if we're in another setting, I'll talk about what grace is. Uh, I hear the word grace used all the time. Grace is one of the most important, significant, rich terms in the Christian tradition. Grace saves us. Grace transforms us. Grace takes us home. Grace makes us different. Grace will grow us up into the image of Christ. Grace, grace will not only keep us out of hell, it will get the hell out of us. That's grace working in our lives. But when I hear a lot of contemporary Americans and Methodists, guys, these people I know best, use the word grace, they have boiled all of that richness down to just God letting you off the hook. That, you know, we don't care about, about how, how, how you live, how you are. What, that's not what grace is. That doesn't, you know, somebody letting me off the hook doesn't transform me a lot. It's not really that amazing either. Um, sometimes when we mean gracious, that's what we mean. It's mean that you get by with stuff. But hopefully it, it, it means more than that. Gracious may mean that I'll, I'll stick with you and I'll help you change. I'll help you get to a different place. God loves us and accepts us just Harry and Mr. Fostick. God loves us and accepts us just as we are, but he refuses to leave us there. And that's grace changing us. Grace perfecting us. That's our Methodist term. Are you going on to perfection? And we Methodists are supposed to say yes. Because if you aren't going on to perfection, tell me where you're going on to. Uh, we need to constantly be progressing in the faith. And, and, and we, we couldn't do it without God's grace operating in us. So sometimes grace is delightful. Sometimes the grace of God is delightful. Sometimes it feels like I'm being pruned with some gardener shears. And that's still the grace of God at work in my life. Uh, grace, God loves us so much, He really gives us grace that's amazing that will accept us and change us and transform us and take us home. So, uh, yeah, I get what John's saying here. He digested the Word of God. It was uh, bittersweet in his stomach. And it was, um, it was like honey in his, in his mouth. Um, you get what I'm saying. I mean, you know this about Scripture. We don't like to pay attention to this. That's why we have just... That's why most... A lot of Christians in America, they only know a little thin slice of the scriptures. The, you know, the part they like. The part that comforts and affirms them and doesn't require too much transformation. But, um, and you know, I'd love to just only preach that part. But, um, you know, I've got to pay attention to the, the whole of scripture and the whole of the will of God. Both that that is, I mean, and I, and I feel it on Sunday morning when I'm preaching. I know if I'm talking about something that's making me sick on my stomach or if I'm talking about something that tastes like honey in my mouth. And I usually can look at you and tell. Um, anyway, I get what John's talking about here. Verse 10, let's wrap it up. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and he ate it. This is a recommissioning of John as a prophet. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. It's both. 
You can't just talk about the love of God without talking about the wrath of God. I think I mentioned here when the Methodist movement started, the, the, the one and only question that you had to answer to get started with the Methodist people was, do you, do you desire to flee from the wrath to come? You know, I'm not even sure most contemporary Christians know that there's a wrath coming. We Methodists knew it. That was the entrance question. Then we'd work on your theology. We'd get you talking. We'd, we'd help you learn about the virgin birth and all this other stuff. But to, to accept you in our midst, that was a question you were asked. Do you desire to flee from the wrath to come? So we, we know about the, the, the part that tastes like honey and the part that makes, makes us sick on the stomach that we choose not to talk about. Verse 11, and I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And I think the point right here is uh, if you read this in Jeremiah and you read this in Ezekiel when they were commissioned with the same type language, they were commissioned only to preach to the people of Israel, Jerusalem people of Israel. It's clear that John is com- being commissioned to preach to all, all humanity, not just the people of Israel. So, it's a fairly simple, straightforward section of Scripture. And so next week, we will start at chapter 11.